Well, good evening, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors, and if it's your very first time, I want to welcome you. We hope you have a great time with us. Uh, so we're going to be going to our time of teaching right now. Inside your program is a green and white message note sheet that we use every week for this time, and so I encourage you to take that out. And if you guys are all set and ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You ready to go? Let's pray. God, we're excited to be here and to continue this journey and this series into the danger. And God, so many times you call us to step out. You call us to, to listen and follow, and amazing things happen when we do. As we continue this series today and we, we study what happens when a person steps out and follows you for the very first time, that can feel very dangerous, and, and how we are transformed, how we are changed, what happens when we come to you. We pray that today you would open our eyes of our heart and open our spiritual ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing the series that we've been in for the last many weeks called Sent Into the Danger. And for those of you who are brand new, this is actually uh, the second in a longer series on one of the most important books in our New Testament. It's called the book of Acts. And uh, what we've watched so far is we've watched as this early movement of Jesus that starts off with uh, just a few hundred believers in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus rapidly grows to five, ten, perhaps even 15,000 believers within very rapidly, within a few months or a year. But along with that rapid growth comes increasing persecution as the religious establishment in Jerusalem feels increasingly threatened. And uh, one of the things we've seen is that one of the leaders of this persecution was a man named Saul uh, from the city of Tarsus. Now, if you were here on an Easter weekend about three weeks ago, we began to take a look at Saul's story, and we, uh, we took it up to a point, uh, but we want to we kind of go back to a quick review and then go on from there today. If you were here for Easter, we saw that Saul was born in the university city of Tarsus. Now, Tarsus, um, if we had a map, and pretty soon in this series, we'll start putting maps in, um, just so you can kind of see, kind of picture this, but it's in southern Turkey. It's about 350 miles approximately north of Jerusalem. So that's like the distance pretty much between here and San Francisco. So Saul was born into a conservative Jewish family in the city of Tarsus, University City. But when he was young, he was a very bright child. When he was young, he was chosen and selected to study under one of the most famous, uh, famous rabbis of his day. This would be like the Harvard of his day. And so he traveled south to Jerusalem to study under the rabbi Gamaliel. And so when the movement of Jesus launched, he was convinced from the beginning that Jesus was a heretic, that Jesus was a false prophet. Uh, and as the movement grew, he became convinced that he needed to do everything he could to stop it to preserve the true faith in the God of Israel. Uh, and so very early on, he became part of this major persecution that broke out after the death of uh, the first martyr of the early church, a man named Stephen. And he actually went to the religious leaders in Jerusalem and volunteered his services to help in any way. So what happened is after the death of Stephen, a major persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, and those 10,000 believers in Jesus are forced to flee for their lives. Uh, and so the persecution that was designed to stop the movement actually accelerated the movement. And because wherever these new Jesus followers went, they shared the message of Jesus. 
And so this was a crisis, and so Saul, whose name, uh, we, we often uh, refer to him by his Roman name, Saul is his Jewish name, his Roman name is Paul, just happened to rhyme in English, um, but anyway, but uh, uh, Saul uh, goes to the religious leaders, and he volunteers to go north about 135 miles to the, to the ancient city of Damascus uh, to arrest any Jesus followers to bring them back for trial. And so he got warrants, kind of extradition warrants to do that. And if you were here on Easter, we talked about this. As he was approaching the city of Damascus, which was about a week journeys away from Jerusalem, as he's approaching, he has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus that's going to change his life. We called it the game changer. And so we left, uh, we left Saul, Paul there that weekend. And today we're going to go back and pick up his story and see what happens over the next two or three years of his life after he meets Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open with me to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to pick it up at verse 6. There in your note sheets, a section called Saul's Story Conversion. And we're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter today. So in verse 6, um, this is, uh, he has this encounter with Jesus. Remember, uh, Jesus shows up in all his glory. So resurrected body, just like uh, after the resurrection, his, his uh, disciples saw him. But uh, with all of his glory, so, so Saul sees the glory of God. Uh, he knows right away it's from the Old Testament. This is the Shekinah glory of God. But he sees a person in the midst of that glory. And he says, who are you, Lord? He knows it's the God of Israel, but can't kind of make it out. He says, I'm Jesus, right? So it's, he describes it as brighter than the sun. And so uh, it knocks him to the ground. And in verse 6, Jesus speaks to him and says, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And so he's going to get up. The only problem is when he gets up, he's blind. So this light has fried his retina or whatever, but he is blind. And so he's come as a persecutor, powerful. He's being led like a child now into the city in total darkness. And so he gets up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. Now, for three days, he was blind. Now, here's the thing. Uh, for us, as we read this, uh, we read it real quick, like, oh, for three days, he was blind. Bummer of three days. But what I want you to catch is if you're Saul, you don't know you're going to be blind for three days. What you know is that you have made the biggest mistake of your life. You have committed the greatest possible sin as a Jew. You have rejected the Messiah of Israel. You have persecuted his followers. You have gone door to door in Jerusalem, uh, like Nazis in, in Germany looking for Jews. You have drugged people out. You have beaten followers of Jesus to try to get them to curse the name of Jesus. When they've come up for trial, you have voted for their execution. And now you find out that you were on the wrong side. And Jesus has shown up and he didn't kill you. But you're blind. As far as Saul knows, he's going to be blind for the rest of his life. This may be part of the judgment for all he knows. And so these next three days are going to be hell for Saul. 
they're going to be very painful. Um, we're going to learn in just a second, he is not going to eat or drink for three days. Have you ever done that? I mean, just, just out of shock or fear? I remember, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but when I was in seventh grade, I fell in love for the first time, didn't eat all weekend. Uh, <laughs> but it was out of passion, not fear. Uh, finally, Monday morning, my parents said, if you don't eat something, we're sending you, we're sending you the doctor. Well, I don't know what's wrong. I didn't tell them what was going on. Like, oh, no, I'll eat some. <laughs> Again, I can't wait to get to school and see her. But anyway, um, anyway, a little different than Saul, but you get the idea. Uh, so anyway, for, for verse 9, for three days he was blind. He didn't eat or drink a thing. He was in shock. I'm sure that these three days he is racking his mind, where did I go wrong? I mean, this man is passionate for the God of Israel. This, guy, this man has memorized Torah. This man knows the Bible like the back of his hand. This man heard all the arguments for Jesus of Nazareth of why he was the Messiah. He wasn't buying it. And now he's committed the greatest possible sin. I'm sure for three days he is racking his mind. He is going back. I'm sure he is seeing the people in his mind that he has beaten. I am sure he is going in his mind the trials that he voted for the execution of people. I'm sure that he is racking his mind going over all the messianic prophecies that now it turned out to be true. I'm sure he's rethinking his whole approach to God. This, his whole approach that was so performance-based, if I can just obey the law long enough, well enough, God will accept me. That these three days are very painful days for Saul. And remember, as far as he knows, there's no end. Like Jesus didn't tell him, hey, for the next three days you're going to be blind, but then it'll all get better. He just knows he's blind. As far as he knows, it may be for life. And so, anyway, meanwhile, Luke is going to pan the camera now. We're going to switch scenes. We're going we're to go across the city of Damascus to a man named Ananias. We don't know a lot about him. He's a follower of Jesus. We don't know how he became a follower of Jesus. But he is a very special guy, as we're going to see. And so in Damascus, there was a disciple, which was the normal name for Christians, as we've seen in Acts. There was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. So he's praying, and he has a vision. And uh, he says, yes, Lord, Lord Jesus. Yes, Lord Jesus. And he said, I want you to go to the house of Judas, there's a man named Judas, uh, he lives on Straight Street, interesting, I have never been to, I've not been to Damascus yet, but what I am told, I mean, I understand from scholarly, you know, literature, is that this street still is there today, uh, this street is the main east-west street in old Damascus, and it's still there to this day, and so he said, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, and ask for a man from Tarsus, uh, remember, it's about 250 miles, 250 miles north of Damascus, where they all know, uh, named Saul. He's praying in a vision. He's praying. Now, the moment that Jesus, in this vision, mentions Saul of Tarsus, this is going to get Ananias' attention. Because the Jewish community was very interconnected in the ancient world. The Jewish community in Damascus knew that there was this heresy going on about Jesus of Nazareth. They knew that there was a major persecution, and they knew Saul was behind it, as we'll see. In fact, they even knew, 
as we'll see as we go through this passage, they even knew Saul was on his way with extradition warrants. So Jesus is going to tell Ananias, I want you to go pray for a man, this man named Saul, he's from Tarsus. This would be like telling a Jew in World War II, I want you to go pray for Heinrich Himmler. Like, are you serious? Like, this guy is behind, you know, the final solution. I mean, this is Saul of Tarsus. He's the guy leading the charge against us. He's come to arrest us. You want me to go and pray? But here's what I want you to catch. All through Acts, we've seen this. The early church models this, not exclusively, not every time, but almost every time, that they are really good at listening and following. And when they do, amazing things happen. And we're going to see it again. And what we're going to see is really interesting. There's a double vision going on. What Jesus is going to say, remember, remember Ananias is having a vision, right? And he says, uh, Ananias, uh, there's this guy named Saul of Tarsus, and right now across town, he's having his own vision. It's two for one day, right? <laughs> so you're having a vision, he's having a vision. And in his vision, he sees a man named Ananias. That would be you. And he sees this man coming and laying his hands on him and healing him. And so we'll see, Ananias is not so big on this idea. So he says in the end of verse 11, he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. Uh, that would be you come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. And so Ananias says, Lord, um, are you sure? Um, I have heard many reports about this man. You know, CNN, social media, uh, it's all over Twitter. I mean, I'm telling you. Uh, and all the harm he has done to your holy people, your followers in Jerusalem. And on top of that, he has come here, this word on the street, um, with authority from the chief priests of our nation to arrest all who call on your name, Jesus. Um, are you sure that this is the guy you want me to go lay hands on? And so the Lord says to Ananias, um, yeah, I got a plan. Trust me in this. He says, uh, go, this man is my, what's the next two words? Chosen instrument. I want you to remember that. This man is my chosen, I've chosen him. This man's my chosen instrument. Very unlikely choice, by the way. But he's my chosen instrument, and he's going to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So the persecutor is about to become the persecuted. And so I love this. Ananias says, got it? Okay, good, go. And he just listens and he follows. And because he does, something amazing is going to happen. So Ananias went to the house and he enters it. I love this. He places his hands on Saul. Isn't this tender? On this persecutor. This one who has beaten uh, your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. He, he gently places hands on him. And he said, catch this, what's the first word? Brother. 
men and women, there are some people in your life right now that they might be a family member, they might be a co-worker, they might be a neighbor, and right now they mock you for being a follower of Jesus. But God may call them into his family. And when that happens, they're going to go from enemy to brother or sister in an instant. And when that happens, you want to make sure that you've treated them like a brother or sister in advance. And so he says, brother Saul. And I love this. Uh, he says, the Lord, you know, Jesus, <laughs> I love this. Saul's still getting used to this idea of Lord and Jesus being in the same sentence. The Lord, you know, Jesus, the one who appeared to you on the road as you're coming here, that Jesus, um, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and Remember, Luke, our author, is a doctor, and the term he uses here in Greek is a medical term. And, uh, and he could see again, and it's almost symbolic, isn't it? Like when Saul thought he could see, he, when he could see, he was blind, but when he was blinded, that's where he could see. And it's, it's almost a beautiful thing. So he says, so he got up, and he was what? Baptized. In the ancient church, man, when you came to faith, you got baptized. No unbaptized believers. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. He hadn't eaten in three days. And so now he spent several days. In the Greek, it actually says um, some days. We don't know how long. But he spent several days with the, so don't read several, like three days. Because uh, it's just, it's not really like that in the Greek. It's more like uh, some days, you know. So he spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So they, once again, notice how Christians are called what? Good, three of you. That's really good. Um, let's try it again. He's like, I expect that Sunday at 9, if I get one, it's good. You know, it's like, like the one person who's awake. But Saturday night, you, are, I depend on you. So let's try it again. So, uh, so he spent several days with the, the home? Disciples. Disciples, yeah, notice what they're called. Uh, in Damascus, and, and at once he begins to preach in the synagogues. Now, how crazy is this? Everyone has heard he's coming to arrest Jesus' followers. And now he shows up and he starts preaching Jesus. Like, everyone is just like, what is going on here? So once he began to preach, you know, the most unlikely people, the people we think will never come to Jesus, you know, Jesus may have something to say about that. So, and once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished. They're just blown away. And they said, hey, wait, isn't this the guy that raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name, this name of Jesus? And hasn't he come here to take him as prisoners to the chief priests? Like, what's going on? But Saul grew more and more powerful. You know, when you first come to Jesus, it's a beautiful thing when someone first comes to Christ. Like, last week I emailed a lady that she just came to visit. She lives in the Philippines. And she just came here, uh, I believe it was this fall, uh, to visit her sister. And her sister invited to church. And she came to church. And she just gave her life to Jesus, just like, and now, so um, her sister emailed me and said, hey, my, my, my sister gave her life to Jesus right before you went to Israel, and, uh, and so I reached out to her in the Philippines and just said, I so want to welcome you to the family, and she's just hungry to grow, 
And when you first come to Jesus, especially if you're in a good environment, like a good church environment, you have some Christians, it's amazing how fast you can grow, isn't it? It's just like, man, it's like almost like every day, the word's coming alive, it's kind of just chugging down the word, and, and you're going to, ch- and you're just growing, and you're changing, and it's happening so fast. And that's what's happening with Saul, but you can picture with his background, knowing the Bible like the back of his hand, being a rabbi, imagine how everything is like with every day, it's like, it's like when you get new glasses, how they're like, is this better or is this better? And every day it's like, couldn't clear, you know, it's just, and so he, it says that every day that uh, he's getting stronger, and it says, verse 22, uh, he grew more and more powerful, and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. And so after many days, and again, it's that kind of um, uh, unnumbered amount of days, some days, after some days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Uh, This was their worst nightmare. Uh, Their knight in shining armor has switched sides, and uh, he is tearing them up, and we got to take this guy out. And so there was a conspiracy to kill him, but, but Saul learned of the plan. God was protecting him, and so Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates um, that they could kind of capture him there. But his followers took him at night, and they lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. So in the ancient times, um, houses were often built on the walls, and so someone just kind of lowered him out there, and he escaped. And it says, when he came to Jerusalem, and if you were to put this together in Galatians 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul, Galatians is perhaps his first letter, and in that letter, he talks about his post-conversion experience. And if you put that letter with Acts, it would appear that when Luke's, he's got, Luke is kind of telescoping, compacting this timeline, that he actually, after he uh, left Damascus, he went into the desert of Arabia that's right there by Damascus, and he didn't go to Jerusalem for like, after like three years. And so um, in that time in the desert, we don't really know what he did. Some people think he was on a retreat. Uh, many scholars today more likely think he was preaching Christ. We don't really know. But uh, anyway, so it would be three years later then when he went to Jerusalem, he tries to join the disciples. Notice again, they're called disciples, the Christians. But, um, but they were all afraid of him. Like, we remember him. And uh, they're not believing he was really a disciple. So they thought he was trying to infiltrate, like as a spy, and take him out. Uh, but Barnabas, remember, a great guy. We met him back in chapter 4, high respect in Jerusalem. He actually took, uh, took Paul, and he brought him to the apostles. I'm sure this was a private meeting. as probably, you know, he probably blindfolded him or something like that. Um, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, just like, you know, they had, how the apostles had, and that the Lord had spoken to him, <coughs> now, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So in other words, no, no, this guy, is re- he's truly converted. I mean... Um, he's, he's risked his life for Jesus. And so then Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And you can imagine how irritating this was to the religious leaders. Uh, this was also a very short stay. And later on in Acts, we'll find that Paul will say that during this time, at the end of it, Jesus will appear to him in a vision, tell him to get out of Dodge, that uh, this is not going to work. And Saul's going to say, no, no, they know me. And Jesus says, no, no, you need to get out. So uh, in t- verse 29, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews, uh, like Stephen had, tri- had done, but they tried to kill him too. And so when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea, about 100 miles away on the seacoast, that major Roman city we talked about last week. 
and they sent him off then north to his hometown of Tarsus. And that's where Luke is going to leave Paul for a couple of chapters. Uh, we're going to leave him there for a few years. We're going to come back to him at the end of chapter 11. But now, um, now Luke is going to give one of these summary statements we've talked about earlier in the book of uh, Acts. There are six of these statements throughout Acts where Luke kind of summarizes a whole era of the church's life. Think of it like book one, book two, kind of like a, a major novel being separated into major parts. And so he summarizes, he says, Then the church throughout uh, Ju- uh, Judea and Galilee and Samaria, that's the traditional borders of Israel, they enjoyed a time of peace uh, and they were strengthened. And so remember, this whole, um, this whole section of Acts starts with the arrest and then the trial and the execution of Stephen that leads to this major persecution led by Paul. And now Paul has been converted, and so it kind of wraps up this season. And there's a new season now of peace. And it says uh, they were, um, so they, they enjoyed a time of peace. They were strengthened. They're living in the fear of the Lord, like under his, the leadership of King Jesus. They're encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and it increased in numbers. And so uh, once again, during the season of peace after persecution, now the church is going to be growing rapidly again at this season. All right, so that's the, the, the passage. And like I said, uh, Luke is going to change now his focus. And the next couple of chapters, we're going to catch up with the Apostle Peter and what's happening in the meantime with Peter. We'll leave um, Saul. We'll pick him up at the end of chapter 11. He'll still be in Tarsus where we leave him here in chapter 9. But what I want to do today in the time that we have, is I want to focus on the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And the reason is this, is that the conversion of Saul of Tarsus was an incredibly unique experience, right? This encounter that he had with Jesus on the road to Damascus was incredible. I, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing most of you, you know, that wasn't like, yeah, I was in Santa Clarita, in my car, bright light, knocked me off my car, You know, it's like this was unique, right? His experience was unique. But here's what I want you to catch. Though his introduction to Jesus was unique, the impact of his relationship with his encounter with Jesus was not unique. And what Saul will go on, Saul, Paul will go on to write in his letters is that there's certain, uh, certain things that happened every time someone meets Jesus, you, me, or anyone else. That when someone comes in Christ, there are certain supernatural changes that happen right then, right there. The exact same changes that happened to Saul happened to us. Right? So what I want to do today is talk about conversion 101. Because as followers of Jesus, it's really important for us to understand what happens to us when we come to Jesus. Because it has tremendous implications on how we listen and follow uh, and how we live out this, this mission he's called us to live. So there on your note sheet, there's a section that's called Conversion 101, the new creation. This whole thing is supernatural. We'll talk about that later. And I want to come up, I want to make three points. What happens when anyone comes to Jesus? And then number two, I want to come back and ask three questions for our life, kind of implications of this. And so number one is that, uh, this new creation that happens in conversion, conversion creates two things. It creates faith and repentance. That when someone comes to Jesus, that supernaturally, that conversion creates, 
this double-sided coin that we call faith and repentance. Anytime someone meets Jesus, this is the result, faith and repentance. Now, what I'm saying is that faith and repentance are the flip side of the same coin. Think of faith as a turning to Jesus. Think of repentance as a turning away from rebellion. Right? So when someone meets, like, you want to, how do I know if someone really met Jesus? You'll always see this, these two things. There is a faith, and, and by that I mean there's a new understanding of who Jesus is and a trust in Jesus to lead our life, to forgive us. There's a faith that happens a revelation of who Jesus is and a trust in him, a turning to Jesus and a turning away from our old life. It happens when anyone ever goes through, uh, comes to Christ. And of course, this happens to Saul of Tarsus, doesn't it? Uh, You see it very easily. Uh, When Saul of Tarsus, before he encounters Jesus, he thinks Jesus is a fraud. He thinks he's a false messiah a false prophet, therefore, as a God-fearing Jew, it's his responsibility to stop this movement. So before we come to Jesus, we have a view of Jesus. And we talked this a little bit on Easter, that when anyone comes to before, it's like we, you know, we have a view of, he might be a good teacher, he might be a prophet, he might be whatever we think he is, uh, we might be a deceiver, we might think it's the worst thing that ever happened, but we all have a view of who Jesus is. But one of the things that happens in conversion is there is a supernatural unveiling of our eyes so we see who Jesus is and we see why he died for us. And we may not understand all the intricate details. I remember when my wife came to Jesus, I think she was about 17 years old, and she was at a retreat, I was at the same retreat, we weren't really, didn't know each other much then, but I was at the same retreat, mountain retreat, and, and as the speaker spoke about Jesus and salvation, that all she knew is that she needed what the speaker was talking about. She had a profound sense that I need what he's talking about, and she went uh, uh, forward afterwards to be prayed for, I want what you're talking, she didn't understand all the details. So I'm not saying that we have complete understanding, but there's a sense that Jesus is real and that he is the answer and he is the Savior and I need him and our eyes are open. And so for Saul, he went from Jesus uh, being a false Messiah to Jesus being son of God, right? There was a uh, uh, opening of his eyes and this understanding, I need Jesus, I need his death for me, Uh, My whole performance-based approach to God is wrong. And so there's a new faith. You can see that pretty clearly. But you also can see this repentance, can't you? You can see during that three days, you can just kind of picture him completely changing course. Later on in his life, uh, Paul will tell us more about that conversation with Jesus that he had at the road to Damascus and with Ananias. And there in your note sheet, I want you to see what he says about this conversation. This is from Acts 26. We'll get to it in about nine years. Uh, But this is Jesus talking to Saul of Tarsus when he first was converted, all right? And so he says, I am sending you, 
Jesus says, I'm sending you to them to what are the next three words? To what? Open their eyes. I want you to catch this. Anytime someone is converted, there is an opening of eyes. It's like scales come off the eyes, just like with Saul. There's an open. Now, catch it. Sometimes this happens in a flash, like Saul of Tarsus. Some of you here, when you came to Jesus, you may have come into church the very first time in your life, and someone's talking about Jesus, and God just like hits you like a ton of bricks, and you gave your life to Jesus. Others of you here, when you come to Jesus, it's more like the slow dawning of a new day. It's a process. You may not be able even to say when you cross the line. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis stories is people ask, when did you give your life to Christ to become a Christian? He said, I'm not really sure. I remember going to the zoo and I didn't believe. And when I got back from the zoo, I did. Um, And so for some people, it's a flash. For others, it's a process. But whether it happens, the blindness goes away like that, or whether it's a slow, uh, so opening of the eyes, there's a faith in Jesus that is created by this conversion. And so he says, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and catch them, turn them from what? To light. That's the repentance piece. We switch from the dark side, the evil, destructive side, to light, to what's right and good and true, as Paul will later, later define the right in Ephesians 5. He says, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, made pure, by what? By faith in me. And so then Saul goes on, Paul goes on to say he's, he's explaining his conversion to King Agrippa when he's in, at a court in in a court case at this point, he said, I preached that they should what? Repent and turn, catch this, turn to God, see there's the faith, and prove their repentance by their what? Deeds. Okay? So, so what happens in conversion, there's a turning to God that's, that's results at the opening of our eyes that allows us to trust in Jesus and there's a turning away from darkness that's proved by our lives. You see? And without faith and repentance both, conversion does not happen. Now, can I tell you something? This is one of my big fears about Christianity in America. I think we have often mistaken a, a spiritual awakening with conversion. And often we have thought, hey, saying sinner's prayer or something, I'm in now but there's no repentance in the life. Without faith and repentance, how do you know someone's converted? Because they've turned to God, but they've turned away. Now, not perfectly. We're all going to struggle and all that, right? So we, we come, not perfectly. But there is a new sense of right and wrong. And there is a new draw to what is right and a new hatred of what's wrong. And when we go back and do what's wrong, it's not like it was before. There is something that eats at us, right? There is something that's different. And so convert, and catch this, this is all supernatural. This is all, like, no one opens their own eyes. 
No one causes the scales to fall on their own. No one on their own, I'm going to repent. No, no, this is supernatural. This is something God does. In fact, later on, Paul will describe this 30 years later in his letter to the church at Philippi that we'll get to in chapter 16 in about five years. Um, and there in, in, in verse uh, one, chapter 1, verse 6, this is from the New Living Translation, here's how Paul describes conversion. He says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you. Catch that. Who began it? God. No one comes to Jesus on their own. This is supernatural. And so that God who began the good work, he will what? Continue. This is what I'm always telling us as a church. Salvation is supernatural from beginning to end. We don't come to Jesus on our own. We don't transform our lives on our own. We are completely dependent on Jesus and the power of his resurrection. He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you're cut off from me, you wither and die. Without him, we've got nothing. Right? This whole process is completely supernatural from beginning to end. Are you with me? And so, when, and it happens when someone comes to Jesus, it happens with this original, this, at, at conversion, this faith and this uh, repentance. Now, number two, the second thing that happens at conversion is that conversion creates purpose. That when a man or woman comes to Jesus, that they are chosen, catch this, not only to be forgiven not only to be part of God's family, but they are chosen to play an important role in God's epic plan for all of creation, to bring all of creation healed and restored under the leadership of its true king, Jesus. For uh, Some of you will remember this. About a year ago, we were in a series called Epic. And it was a study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in this letter, he lays out God's epic vision for all of creation. And we don't have time to do a detailed review of all of epic. But what I want to do is I want to hit real quickly five statements that Paul makes in Ephesians that help us understand this sense of being created uh, for purpose, for destiny. Uh, there in your note sheet, um, well, by the way, before we do that, let's, let's look at what, uh, what, Paul, what, God, what Jesus says to Ananias about Paul. Okay? So in verse 15 of chapter 9, verse 15, it says, Lord Jesus said to Ananias, go, this man is my what? Chosen instrument, right? So, he, so Paul was chosen before time began. In fact, there in your note sheet, in Galatians 1, where he's talking about his timeline, he says this, even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace, and then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. So he said, I was chosen before time began. God had a purpose, a destiny for my life. But here's the thing. What Paul will go on to write in his letters, and we see it especially in Ephesians, 
is that what is true of him is true of every believer. There's not one Christ follower that Jesus chooses, calls himself, and says, oh, now what am I going to do with you? <laughs> it's like um, putting together something from overseas where there's too many parts. Like you ever do one of those barbecue and you end up with all these parts extra? It's like, yeah, we just threw in something. We, uh, uh, it's like there are no believers that are like the extra parts. It's like if you've been chosen, you've been chosen on, for a purpose. And in Epic, in Ephesians, Paul lays this out. And so let's take a look. Let's, do, let's kind of run through these five verses real quick. Ephesians 1.4. Paul starts out the letter. He chose us in him, catch us before the creation of the world. Just like Paul. All of us. To be holy and blameless in his sight. In other words, to be forgiven. To be part of his family. Great. Okay. Next verse. Ephesians 1.10. This is his plan. Remember I talked to this plan, this epic plan? This is his plan. At the right time, he'll bring everything together under the authority of Christ, King, King Jesus, everything in heaven and earth. That's the plan, to bring all of creation back under its rightful leader. Okay, next one, Ephesians 2. What part do we play in that plan? He says, he has created us. Don't miss that, created. That's important language. We'll come back to that. When you come to Christ, you're recreated. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us when? Long ago. So you're chosen before time, not just to be forgiven, to be part of the new community, the family. He's got specific assignment for you. You go into chapter 4, he explains how this works out. He explains why God gives leaders to his church. You know, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors. He says, now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. And he's talking about leadership gifts. He says, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, what's their job? What's the job of leadership? Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the new community, the body of Christ. So the job of leadership is not to do the ministry. The job of leadership is to create a healthy environment where you can discover who you are created to be so you can do the ministry. My job is not to do all the ministry. It's to create a team of leadership and a healthy environment where you can grow and thrive and encounter Jesus and listen and follow and discover his plan for your life so that together we do something amazing. See, see that's, the, that's, the, that's the plan. Okay, so he goes on then in the next verse, uh, chapter 4. He says, he, talking about Jesus, he makes the whole body, so he's going to move into this analogy that we're like a body. Jesus is the head, we're his body, his hands and feet. He said, Jesus makes the whole body fit together perfectly. and says, as each part does its own what? Special work. And so we each have a special work. He talked about that in chapter 2. It helps the other parts grow. So as you do your part, it helps the rest of us grow. And he says, so the whole body is healthy, right, and growing and full of love. What is Rocky Peak called to be? It's called to be healthy, growing, full of love. And how does that happen as each one of us does our unique part? And the moment that you were chosen and you came to Jesus and you were converted, 
there's a calling on your life. We'll come back to that later. Now, number three. Number three is conversion <coughs> creates new life. Creation converts new life. And, of course, we're talking about this whole new creation thing. We'll come back to that later. But what I want you to catch is that when someone comes to Jesus, something happens to them. They're not the same person anymore. The creation, when you come to Jesus, it's more than you just believe differently. Something actually happens to you. At a core level, at the deepest part of your being, you go through a radical transformation. You are no longer the same person. And the way that Paul often will write about this, he will describe this as being connected to Christ. His favorite phrase for it, and you see it all through his writings, are these two little words, in Christ. He'll say that when you come to Jesus, you are like connected to him. You are um, you're like supernaturally connected to Jesus. Think of like vine and branch, that you are in Christ. And so what happens is that Everything he went through for you, you get the benefit of that. So you're able to die to sin. You couldn't die to sin before, but now because he died to sin and you're connected to him, you have a new power to die to sin. Um, it's like going, like I often use this analogy, but it's like going online with him. It's like once we... We're at the moment of our conversion, we go online with Jesus. We're networked with him so that his experience becomes available to us. So this is what baptism is all about, right? Like last week, we baptized, what was it, 47 people. And as we baptized those people and you heard the stories, did you hear the stories of their transformation? Did you hear the, the stories of change? And what had happened is they... They had come, become connected to Jesus so that his life and his death to sin and his resurrection power was being released to them. And the moment a person is converted, there is this connection that we are connected to Jesus. And therefore, we have the power of the resurrection available to us and we have this power to die to an old life that we didn't have before. So uh, you see this even in the way Paul talks about baptism. Like there in your note sheet, in Romans chapter 6, Paul writing to the Romans in the mid-50s, he says, don't you know that all of us, uh, he says, don't you get this, don't you understand this, as all of us as believers um, all of us who are baptized uh, into Christ Jesus, and so again, catch this, for Paul, um, there is no unbaptized believer. That's an oxymoron. So that's what he always writes about baptized people. He's not saying like, oh, in your church you have some baptized and some not. It's like, it's a way of describing disciples, baptized people. Okay? But look at the language he says. Don't you know that all of us, no exception, who are baptized, what's the next word? into Christ Jesus. 
Do you see that language? You are baptized into. There is a organic, in the spiritual realm, there's an organic connection. You're connected with Jesus when you come. This is why Paul said you're in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, you see. And because of that, there is a new power that's released in our life, okay? <coughs> and so these are the three things, or at least three of the most important things that happened at the moment of conversion. The moment anyone comes to Jesus, there's an opening of eyes that leads to trust in Jesus, faith, and, and a turning away repentance, the moment a person comes to Jesus, there's a new calling on their life. There's a destiny. And the moment a person comes to Jesus, there is a new life that's released, the life of Jesus. In fact, before we go on, let's kind of read the rest of that. Romans 6 is, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. We're connected with his death. And it says, so we were therefore buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might live a what? New life. You see, when the moment of conversion, there's a new, and this is why for the Apostle Paul, the moment that he was laid hands on, he was healed, he gets up and he's baptized because he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so now we need to do outwardly what's happened inwardly. <coughs> now, this leads then to three questions. And these are going to go very quickly, but they're very important. Number one, they're in your note sheet. It's sexual conversion 101, three critical questions. The first question I have for you, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus here, the first question is, are you clear on your identity? Um, this is a passion of mine. To understand that if you're a follower of Jesus, there is nothing natural about you. I love what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, you're arguing and fighting. He says, when you, when you do this, are you not acting like mere men? What's he saying? You're not mere men, but you're acting like you are. See, there's nothing natural about you that the moment a person comes to Jesus, there's a supernatural transformation at the core of your being. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're not ordinary. You're extraordinary. And you might say, I don't feel extraordinary. Can I tell you something? When Jesus comes back, the truth about you will be revealed. It will come out. Hopefully, we'll see it before then, too. But that's another story. We'll get to that in a minute. See, at the deepest part, of, if you're a follower of Jesus, at the deepest part of you, you have been changed. The most important part that's going to live forever, you have been changed. In fact, Paul will use language of creation to describe this. Look there in your note sheet, 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is what? What are the next two words? In Christ. See, connected. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. The old has gone, the new has gone. Something dramatic has happened at your core. Now you may say, I, but I don't feel like that always. That's Okay. I was thinking about this on the way over here, uh, or as a home, right before I left, and I was remembering the, the fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen, The Ugly Duckling. 
And I was saying, you know, this, this poor little bird that is born into this duck family, and then he's rejected and kicked out because he's so ugly. But there was more to that bird than met the eye. That bird was destined to be a swan, and it was just a matter of time. Like when you, if you ever make the mistake of getting a dog, um, I've made the mistake. I'm just trying to help. Uh, it was funny. Our Israeli guide, he's like, oh, my. I made the biggest mistake. I just got a dog and our lives will never have them back. But anyway, um, if you know anything about that, well, let me just help you out. When you go to choose puppies, I don't care how small the puppy is, you always measure the puppy by the paws, right? Because sooner or later, that puppy that's so little and cute is going to grow into those paws. The size of the paws determines the size of the dog, right? As a follower of Jesus, you have big paws. As a follower of Jesus, you are that swan. It's just a fact. You know, I don't really care. I, I, don't, feel, I don't really care whether you feel like it. It's nothing to do with that. I'm just telling you the truth about you. That if you've come to Jesus, you are supernatural. There's a power in you that raised Jesus from the dead. You may not have learned how to access it. That's fine. It's still there. It's not like you're going to get it later. You've got the pause. Right? You've got the pause. Number two, second question I have for you is, are you pursuing your destiny? Now, we saw today in Ephesians that when someone is chosen to be part of God's family, they're not just chosen to be forgiven and to be part of the family, they're chosen to play a specific role. We, we went through that. Now, a big part of that role, and I want you to catch this, a big part of that is just living life at a whole new level. In fact, in Ephesians 5, remember we went through 4, but in Ephesians 5, it starts off and says, as followers of Jesus, our new calling is to live a life of love. So a big part of living out our destiny is just loving God and loving people. And it starts at home. It starts in our marriage. It starts with our kids. It starts with our friends. It starts with our life group. It starts with uh, our, our workplace and the community and the world and all that sort of thing. So a big part of destiny is just being who you've called to be wherever you are. But what I want you to catch is that Paul is very clear in all his writings that also you have been uniquely gifted by God to play a part. There are specific assignments for you. There's specific giftings in your life. You're part of the community, and it says you live out your giftedness to the community gets healthy and grows in love. And if you don't, we all suffer. If you are not using your gifts, we are all paying the price. And so you see that today, just a couple of great examples. There's Ananias and Barnabas. These guys were gifted guys, had lots of calling on their life. But in this one event, this one account, 
we see Ananias called to enter the danger to go lay hands on Saul. And we see Barnabas enter the danger to vouch for, vouch for to the apostles for Saul. And just ask, let me ask you this. What would have happened if either one of those men hadn't played their part? And then number three, the third question is, are you living out your new reality? We've seen today that when a person comes to Jesus, you're connected to him. He, you're not simply forgiven. You are connected at the core in an organic way. Through his Holy Spirit, you're connected. You're online. So you have access to his death and you have access to his life. You have the power to die to your old life and rise to the new. And that's why Paul often uses this language in his writings. For example, there in your note sheet, I love this Colossians 1. This is from the New Living. It says, you died to this life. When did we die to this life? When we became a Christian. <laughs> uh, you are connected to Jesus in his death. He said, you died to this life. And your real life is hidden with Christ and God. Like, you may look normal on the outside, but you are anything but normal. And he says, when Christ catches who is your what? Your life. You're connected to him. When he's revealed to the whole world, notice when he comes back, you will share in all his glories. Uh, you'll be revealed as for who you are. He says, so as a result of that, put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you, your old life. Have nothing to do. And he gives some great examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Give some more now, practical internal things. Now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature. No, it's through your connection with Christ and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become what? Like him. See, when you came to Jesus and connected, the reason you're connected is so you can die to the old life that's destructive and rise with him to a new life. So my question is, are you living in the new reality? And can I tell you something? Sometimes it takes a while to learn this because you come to Jesus, but we keep flirting with the old life. You know what I'm talking about? We keep flirting with it. We keep flirting with the immorality or we keep flirting with the anger. We keep flirting with the, the bitterness, we, whatever it is. And so it's like a pull and there's something within you because you're a new creation. There's something within you that's pulling you to a new higher life. And yet there's this old habit and there's this old thing. And sometimes we give in to the old thing. And when we do that, we're not being who we are. And that's why we're so miserable when we're in that. Like if you're a true Christ follower and you're living in the old life, you know this. You're miserable. You're not happy. You might have pleasure here or pleasure there, but you're not happy. And the reason is, it's like you're not being true to yourself. You're a new person. And you'll never be happy until you're being who you are. And finally, it gets to a place where we're just sick of it. We're sick of the anger. We're sick of the greed. We're sick of the worry. We're sick of the fear. We're sick of the immorality. We're sick of the bad things. We finally say, I'm done with this. I'm going to rise with Christ. I'm going to die to my old life. I'm going to rise to a new life. And can I tell you something? When we get to that day, it's the best day of our life. 
because we are finally who we are. We are living out our true identity. And we're finally stop pretending we're the old person. We are not. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. I don't care if you feel like an ugly duckling. I don't care how often you look at porn. I don't care how immoral you are. I don't care how many drugs you take. I don't care how much enslaved to greed you are. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And so, and so, we come to a place, and I just ask you, are you living in the new reality of who you are? Amen? Amen. I've gone on way too long. Let's pray. (laughs) God, we are just thankful for the reality of conversion. We are so thankful that you who began a good work and is supernaturally are the one who will carry it out to the day you come back. We are so thankful that we don't have to change ourselves. We just have to listen and follow each step of the way. We're thankful, God, that we, though we don't have the power to transform us, that you are our life. You live in us. We have access to your life and your death and your resurrection. And as we learn to trust in you and we learn to listen and follow, a new life is released. So, God, we thank you that we're a new creation. And we thank you, you're with us every step of the way, when we listen and when we don't. And God, we pray as we worship you now, as we bring our gifts, our tithes, our offering, we pray you'd meet us and you would affirm and sing over us this reality that we are a new creation and you will be faithful to the end. That you who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And everyone said, amen. 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 Let's worship. If you are in Christ, you are amazing. You are born again. You're full of his spirit. You've been chosen before time. You're forgiven. You've been adopted. You've been chosen to make a difference. He lives within you to give you the power to die to the past and rise to the future. He's coming again. And when he comes, you will be revealed for who you are. And the glory that he has, you will share. As he is, so you will be. And so live your life and live it large. And carpe diem, seize the day. Be who you are. Rise in Christ. Grab the future that he has for you. Live your destiny. Be the people that you are. For God is with us. And he's among us. And the one who raised Christ from the dead lives in us. Amen. Amen. And may the Christ who died for you and lives in you is returning for you. May he live large with you this week. May you trust him. May you listen and follow. May you die to the old, rise to the new, that together we can unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers that could answer his prayer, that his will would be done, his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Prayer to the right, water bands to the back. See you next week.